Everyone, welcome to Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy up here, Vlad. We have made it to episode 61 uh, on the reshoring theme, and we would like to introduce our very special guest, Adam Montoya. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us, Adam. Let us uh, maybe find out more about your background. How did you get started? How did you get into manufacturing? And what led you to your current position at uh, Bright Machines? Um, sure. I, I think I, I kind of stumbled into it, right? So uh, I'll tell you a little bit of the history was um, I was studying CIS and actually like kind of envisioned myself being a, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a computer programmer, but but back then, like, uh, I think computers were command line driven, much more difficult to use. And I was an Uber nerd uh, pretty early on. And, and, I, and I had an affinity for these things and gravitated uh, towards them. And then, you know, the, the trajectory for this was a systems engineer. And so a systems engineer back then was very different from what, what a systems engineer does today. Uh, back then, you know, this was a, a very broad title for people that basically installed uh, data networks back in like coax crimping days and and token rings and 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 uh, Novell, uh, and then we migrated to like Windows NT, and so I was like the 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 IT Uber nerd, and then you know I I found some success at this, started a, a company, and uh, we we got into actually reverse uh, logistics business by by complete uh, happenstance. We found that as the computers were taking off, there was nobody in the United States that would repair them when they would break. Um, so reverse supply chains didn't really exist 20 years ago. It's like kind of kind of, kind of of fresh and clean. And that grew um, pretty rapidly um, and got acquired. And I, I was planning to go do something else, start something more interesting. Um, and in the midst of that, that company that acquired, uh, ours got acquired again and somebody approached me and said, hey, would you like to go do an integration role? And that was, I'm like, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, you're basically gonna onboard these people and make sure that they fit into our cultures and make sure that all of their systems are up to, to par. And I was like, I've only been here a few months, like how could I possibly do this? And, and so there was this uh, massive consolidation in EMS and contract manufacturing in the 2000s. And I, and I kind of rode that wave, um, did this with a company called Selectron which at the time was number, I call it top three of contract manufacturers. And uh, somewhere along the line, Selectron and Flextronics merged uh, about you know, seven years later and became this juggernaut of manufacturing and just kind of the, you know, the industry stalwart for uh, all things EMS uh, and reverse supply chain. So ton of Ton of great memories there. Grew up there, learned a lot, uh, cut my teeth. And right at about 10, 12 years ago, I, I jumped the shark. And, uh, you know, I had been doing MES deployments and, um, you know, putting in, you know, Rockwell automation systems and, and shop floor control systems. And I even, you know, did a stint with um, warehouse management and logistics systems. And we saw this trend with, phones like everybody that had the, the brick phone um and the candy bar phones like uh, they had a keypad and a, and a small screen with maybe you know eight lines uh or like the the nokia with the snake uh that's indestructible we went from that um we had this this reverse logistics and returns facility and i'm, and I'm standing out there this place had you know at the time about 2,000 people 
And uh, hundreds of these people, their job was to press all the buttons every day and make sure the buttons work. And so I said, I bet we can automate this. And, and so came up with a, a load cell and uh, put it on a on an XY gantry and, and had to go press the button. And, and uh, somewhere along the line, they said, you're the automation guy. Uh, so so that that's what you do now. And so I spent the next dozen years building out uh, the, one of the core automation teams inside of, of Flex and, and got to do all kinds of cool stuff. Like, Sorry uh, to interrupt, Adam, that the phone application that was, I guess, testing like quality control for the phones, is that the application that they were? It was diagnostic. So um, when, uh, when phones took off, if they, from the transition to bag phones to really becoming portable, um, all of the OEMs and ODMs were in China. So they didn't have a reverse supply chain to support the US. Motorola was the one exception down in Texas. They had a really good operation. Um, but you had Sanyo rolling in, you had Denso, you had Kyocera, you had all of these brands that you, you thought you were just buying a Sprint phone. There's actually one of these five other OEMs and they're, they're all in Asia. So they set, up, uh, they set up a business that they would pay a bounty for you to take these returns in and diagnose them. And then there was a stratification that said, if it's level one, level two, level three kind of problem, you got paid more based on the diagnostic. Now, the inverse of that was if you went beyond this Pareto that they kind of expected, they would come in and audit you. And so literally we had dozens and dozens of people that would just take the phone and press every button like, yeah, the three sticks. And so that's one billing code. If it's, if it's got an LCD broken, it's obvious. And so we mechanized that. And the reason why it had never been mechanized before um, was the, 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 the constant turnover in the model mix. And so we came up with this concept of um, uh, a device module. I called it a nest, but we, you know, we technically called it a, a device module. And it's basically a bunch of interposers that customize the form factor to the device, but made all of the test and measurement hardware very generic. Um, so it's a, you know, a bunch of things, you can picture a bunch of pogo pins meeting some interface board, and then I'm moving the mechanicals and the acoustic pickups, I'm moving those per model. Um, and so that was like it. That was the first time somebody had taken that reverse logistics model and applied it to, to mechanization. We found some good success there, and, and those, those boxes ended up all over the world, um, you know, diagnosing phones. And a lot of that, the tricks we used for this went into production, like so actually qualifying manufacturing phones. That makes sense. And I guess, how did you transition into Bright Machines or what was the, the story after the, the phones? Um, you know, at, at, at Flex, I had these amazing opportunities and I got to work on, um, you know, when Apple decided to reshore the Mac Pro, it was like a really, really, really tough job. And uh, it, was, it was like equal parts, like the greatest thing I'd ever done and the, the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I was like super mentally fatigued. And, and so at the time, my, my, my boss was like, Hey, go take, go take some time off. And it, like flex time off for like maybe a couple of days. But in this case, I was, I was, I took about a month off and, and I was, I was thinking about hanging up, hanging up manufacturing. Uh, I, I, I posted on, on LinkedIn and responded to, to a comment today. And so I, I was like, ah, I'm going to do it. And so, one of the, the leaders at Flex calls me and he goes, hey, are you sitting down? I have this crazy idea. I want to automate shoes. I want to automate tennis shoes. And I was like, okay, you are, you know, this was actually shortly after 
it was completely legal to, to, to smoke THC. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was like, you obviously uh, have had something something to drink or something to smoke. And he was like, no, no, we're serious. Like, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to figure out how to do it. We're going to, we're going to automate the things that have never been done before. And so I assembled a, a, a pretty strong team um, and we went and tackled some really interesting engineering, uh, namely like, how do you handle flexible goods? How do you handle things that come from a supply chain that's already incredibly imprecise? Um, and then the, the biggest complication is just the, the sheer uh, volume of different SKUs. So like you, you think about manufacturing a cell phone in the 2000s, you had to support CDMA and GSM networks so that have a different radio inside. Um, they might have T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, uh, or, you know, uh, Bell, whatever the, the carriers where you had to like customize that for the phones. But you get into apparel the complexities of managing that manufacturing are gnarly. You've got left and right times a dozen sizes times a dozen colorways. So one pair of Jordan basketball shoes can, can have hundreds and hundreds of permutations. And so the way that it's principally been managed historically was like, paper travelers and this, this concept of a, of a musical size run where you're kind of guessing how many size tens need to be made versus how many size eights. Mm -hmm. It was very imprecise. Um, and it breaks like manufacturing folks head that don't come from that, that kind of industry. Yes. How can this be so imprecise? Well, if you've ever gone into a, a shoe store and found a pair of shoes you just in love with, and then they don't have your size, this is why, like it, the complexities of planning this are, are nuts. And um, yeah, it, it ended up being like a really, really cool job. It reinvigorated me and gave me back like, uh, holy smokes, I wanna do this. Um, and then the uh, core group of us from the automation team uh, were sitting together and, and uh, Leo or the, the founder is like floating this idea and I, I don't know, where it came from in the Genesis piece said, we're going to spin this thing off. We're going to take this group and we can get a better multiple out um, selling to other people. Now, along this journey, when we were inside of um, Flex, we were, we, were, we were pretty regularly being asked to go work for our competition. Like, hey, you know, I'm using dual source. So your competitor down the road is also producing for me. Can you go put in that system that you put in at Flex? And the answer was no, we're, we're not allowed to do that. So this gave us the latitude to, to engage with competitors often um, and, and provide some more value. And we wanted to achieve something that at the time we thought was very niche. We thought it was specifically catering to the needs of contract manufacturing. Mm -hmm. What that was, was this concept of reusable manufacturing. Now, for your listeners and, and for, for controls people and, and kind of people in the space, of course you could repurpose a robot. Of course you could repurpose a PLC. But the actual customers of this type of automation, they couldn't. They don't keep these types of skills on the payroll. The idea of retooling it is one piece, but coming in and recoding it is a, is a completely different monster. And in automotive, which is the most automated um, space, it's, it's this really long life cycle 
four and five years before they retool the line and make massive changes to the automation. And now they've fully depreciated that investment. Mm -hmm. Consumer digital, you've got nine to 12 months. Like you have to fully depreciate that investment or you've got to find a way to make it infinitely reconfigurable. So that was the mission we had taken on. It's like, how am I going to make automation that is easy to reconfigure? I think that's when we all had the aha moment, like, oh my God, everybody wants this. Everybody will pay for this. And that's, that's why Bright Machines exist today and, and kind of what we do. And I guess, Adam, if I may clarify, when you talk about the consumer goods or I guess like electronic devices, you're talking about the phones, the smartwatches, the laptops. Are there like many, any other examples that you can give us that are, that is a fairly short life cycle so that the listeners maybe get a better picture of that industry? Servers, um, any, any kind of personal digital device, like we don't see MP3 players very much anymore because they kind of merge with the phone, but Things with, uh, you know, we call it electronics in a box. And it's, it's really anything that's got a circuit board inside of a metal or plastic housing and an LCD. Those things have a shorter refresh cycle. So even mm-hmm. um, printers, like on the, on the professional side, I remember like the HP 4, um, which was a, a licensed engine design from... Uh, GE, believe it or not, that's the most venerable printer actually came from Genicom. That engine lasted like 12 years um, before people that made major, and, and all they did then was like kind of point, they, they improved the cosmetics and a few functionality pieces, but it kind of was around forever. Well, now, like if you go buy a printer today for your house from Best Buy and you try to go buy another one in, in 18 months, it's probably already been refreshed. And so everything is getting shorter cycles as we as we connect it more, um, you know, not just IOT, but just like connectivity of everything. Um, it's driving this, this cycle down and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sad in a way, um, from a, you know, we don't, we don't fix things anymore. Everything's kind of become this disposable thing, uh, very consumerist, but, um, gosh, if it has a circuit board, it's got a very limited shelf life and even a little bit in automotive, you're starting to see it because every year, you know, the Ford F-150 is getting more and more semiconductors in it. It's getting Mm -hmm. more sensors and, and, and it's getting electronic. uh, uh, It's getting technoed, if you will, uh, in a, in a rate that tries to compete with the Teslas in the world. And I think that's true to most like home appliances as well, right? Your Mm -hmm. dishwasher, your dryer, washer, fridge even has, you know, screens and controls that are beyond what it used to be, you know, even a decade ago. So it's interesting. I certainly agree that it's, it's an interesting, I would say, manufacturing challenge of going through these very short cycles and then be able to change out the machinery, the tooling, the programming. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to touch on one comment that you made, and I know we spoke about this a little bit off stream but the reshoring of the MacBook Pro. Could you tell us a bit more, I guess, and I'm certainly not an expert in reshoring, but what does that essentially entail? What are the steps or the thoughts that go into, I guess, first of all, to say yes to that initiative? And then how does it play out? You know, like who are the main stakeholders that are involved in those discussions and what does it take to reshore something like a a MacBook Pro initiative? Well, it was... It was the Mac Pro, so it was like the desktop. Um, okay. the, the portables, um, they're on a different 
probably on a different scale. I think, you know, originally somebody inside of, you know, the Apple ecosystem said, we want to, we really want to understand what it would take to actually reshore something. We want to know how hard it is. <clears throat> and we'll talk, you know, the, that the subject matter that you guys want to discuss was like, how do you do it? How do you accelerate it? I'll tell you kind of the story of what they went through and mm -hmm. they have unlimited resources and incredibly smart people. Um, just you, if you, if you think you think that they're smart, uh, if you haven't had the opportunity to work with them, uh, brace yourself. Uh, but they went on this journey and said, let's figure out if this is feasible and they looked at their product portfolio and said, all right, what is going to be, um, you know, lower risk? You could never, you, you could never have even pitched the idea of, of the phone. At that point mm -hmm. in the time, the, the phone was selling more units in one day. And, and I don't know the figures, but Gartner does. They were selling more of those phones in one day than the entire year of the, you know, the, the desktop. And, and it wasn't to say that the desktop didn't sell well. That was to say that the phone was just incredibly high volume. And so they picked one and they said, okay, well, we've got to figure out the supply chain first. Um, and I think somebody from manufacturing ops probably said, no, 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 no. You've got to figure out manufacturing ops first. And then somebody from test said, do we even know how to make fixtures in the Americas anymore? So they had to go figure it all out. Mm -hmm. What people do when they're trying to go onshore, the, the, the smart thing to do is is to either <clears throat> hire a partner um so a contract manufacturer that has a footprint mm -hmm. in the americas um and that short circuits half of it right because they they know the process the tooling the supply chain the trade routes they've already kind of got that stuff and i think that um you know i don't know what what tim's long game is but i don't think that they wanted to stand up another factory Right. I don't think that they wanted to own that. It's, it's a huge, um, it's a huge pain to manage. Right. So I think that they, they really wanted to be experts in managing supply chain and supplier management. So they partnered, um, with, with, you know, a, a world-class contract manufacturer and they said, okay, you guys know how to do this manufacturing process. You don't exactly know our manufacturing process. Um, but we're going to come teach you and, you know, somewhere in the middle, we'll find a happy medium. Um, and it was, it was good and very, very painful. And I'll, I'll tell you why it was painful was because they were so used to working in China mm -hmm. and the workforce is very different, um, between China and Texas. So the first thing was, you know, figuring out what the labor model would support. And so we knew basically it was a spreadsheet exercise that to be cost competitive, we had to reduce this percentage of the labor. And it was, it was uh, at the time, it was a comically high percentage. It was, it was like, that's, that's not possible. And, and as a team, you know, both the customer and the service provider side, we, we said, this is where we have to get to. Um, and we, we have to mechanize uh, a ridiculously high percentage. And we set off and made multiple work streams to do this. And it took us about a year. And it was a really interesting project in that we stood up a factory. Um, we brought in engineers. I had an army of folks. Uh, there were, were 500 people hired for this. And um, 
nobody knew what was going on. Like there's like skunk works turned up to 11. The level of secrecy that those guys are able to maintain is unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I think I had like a personal NDA that, you know, I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about it. This was years ago, so I can talk about it now. But um, they, they, they kind of said, don't, don't tell anyone. And ultimately the slip up came from a planning and zoning official who was approving the, like, ah. the inspection and they like put it on a memo who it was going to be to support. And so that's how, that's how the world found out that um, Apple was trying their hand at, at us manufacturing. Again. So that, that was kind of the story of how you got there. They micromanaged the supply chain really tightly. Um, they had preferred vendors, but part of it was figuring out now I can't just import everything from Asia and then have you do the final assembly. Um, some companies have done this and they got a little bit of hot water, right? So, so like, um, in, you know, the, the assembled in the USA versus made in the USA debate that kind of raged on for a little while, but these guys, they took it serious. Um, you know, the circuit boards were, were assembled there. So it wasn't an issue like where you're opening up a box of circuit boards every day and putting them in the chat. No, they were, they were doing the PCBAs on site at very high volume. Um, functional tests, burn-in testing of the boards before they would ever go into a chassis. Um, and I, I can't divulge this, but they have, a, they, they put their machines through a higher level of, of you know, burn-in and testing than, than I think most people would, would have imagined. Um, but they're brutal. So I think that's why their initial quality is very, very high. Um, but we mechanize that whole thing, right? So if you looked at manufacturing, we use the term of value add and non-value add all the time. Mm -hmm. They said anything that's NVA, anything that's not value add to this, like you have to mechanize it. It's the only way we, we, we make this work. And they had this philosophy that was unique to them. Um, and I've seen other companies try to emulate it, but they, they don't quite get it. Um, and if you told them that can't be done, they would say, is it, is it can't be done because it's hard or because physics say it is impossible? And if it's, if it's physics, please bring me the math. And like, there's a, I love this Reddit sub, uh, they did the math. Like you'd have to prove to them in, in either a DOE or with, you know, real uh, analysis behind it that something couldn't be done. They just don't have this culture of, of no. And it forced us, this is what I told you, it was like the hardest job I had ever done. It's like, they're, they're like, you know, why can't you mechanize this? It's really hard. It's really expensive. They don't care. Like prove that it can't be done. And it forced us to stretch. We had never mechanized something that much before. Um, and so it ended up being like the, the flagship kind of deployment. In the end, you know, very tough. Um, but I, I had, I have, long since been away from this, but I know that the next generation rolled out a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, and it stayed in Texas. I was really, really excited to, to hear that the next generation product stayed there too. So that, that became a, uh, you know, a world-class example of, of resource. Now, from a scale perspective, that is a drop in the ocean compared to what it would take to kind of bring back their, their phone business. Mm -hmm. But it encourages me that maybe someday we'll see local for local um, you know, if we can drive the cost of automation down and make it simpler and easy to, to scale to multiple geos, 
someday we can recognize the vision of local for local, which ultimately everybody wants. Um, right now, we just, we just can't do it, right? If you have a, a $500 piece of consumer electronics and it uses a $150,000 tester to validate that it works, you can't put one of those testers in 20 locations. Just no. that's, that's the thing that we're up against. Did they manage to hit the target? You mentioned it was a very ambitious target of how well they would need to automate to make it worthwhile. Did they manage to hit that target? They did. They did. It was very, very painful. Um, and they didn't hit it on day one. Um, and, and, you know, famously, there were, uh, there, were, there were some delays, right? So, you know, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was not an easy mission. Um, but they did hit the goal. Um, and boy, when that line finally got stable and humming, it's, it's just amazing what they're capable of, of doing down there. And like I said, a testament is they got the next generation product four years later. Um, so, and Adam, no, I, I, go ahead, Dave, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say, I think that's very interesting because as Adam talks about all the mechanization, mechanization and automation, I feel like one thing is, you know, controls engineers, people that automate things, we don't necessarily think of as the system in the line. And so the more automation you have, the more dependencies you have, and everything has to be perfect in the in the cell behind, if you will, in order for the next mechanization to go properly. And then when you have five or 10 or more of those in a row, it becomes very difficult and it has to be much more perfect than, than most people are used to uh, when we talk about automation. So I think that that is, that is very interesting. And then to Adam's point, he was talking about kind of low volume, high dollars. I've also seen, especially in like retail, um, especially in like fast fashion, right? So um, we, we talk about, you know, hats a lot. And right, so uh, Preston's hat, the, the one that I was wearing last month, it is something that he can't possibly have the hat embroidered over overseas and then shipped over to the U.S. because that doesn't make sense because it makes sense to make five or 10 or 100 of these relatively local and then you can go over and pick them up. So I think that there is a lot of opportunity kind of around the board when uh, when we talk about that. But Vlad, you had a question. Yeah, I did. Adam, you, you mentioned one thing that when they were bringing back the manufacturing to the U.S. And I guess like this is a key component, I would think, for a lot of the uh, I would say manufacturers is whether you bring a facility or I guess you start a facility of your own or you go with a co-packer, co-manufacturer. What, how does that decision get made? And I guess I'll maybe illustrate like the example from my past experience because I've worked with uh, food facilities and in many cases they do go with a co-packer that can supply them, you know, just enough volume to fulfill certain quotas in, let's say like in peak months but why would you say that they didn't want to go with their own facility? Like what's the, I guess, like what did they shy away from by uh, not going that route? You know, I, I, I can't speak for them. I wasn't in that, that, that kind of a meeting for their decision criteria. But um, what I hear very regularly is like, it's, a, it's as basic as I don't want to own the real estate. Like I don't want to have a facility. Um, and it, you know, don't, don't, don't think of it in terms of a concrete pad and four walls. When, when you say own a facility, you got to hire HR, you got to bring in IT systems, security, parking lots, food vending. Like there's a whole bunch of things that it entails that it's just a real pain. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, 
we touched on this on our other conversation too. Some of these skills are going away. Um, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that. I hope we get into it. Um, like you, 20 years ago to hire, uh, what, what do they call these guys? Uh, a foreman. Mm-hmm. At a, yeah, this job of a foreman or, uh, or a, a facilities, uh, I, I don't even remember the, the title anymore, but these, these people that existed uh, to, to, to run manufacturing uh, plants mm-hmm. and factories. They're hard to find now. And so if you don't go with a partner, like you use the co-packer example, you have to build out all that infrastructure. Um, and it starts with, you know, getting a facilities engineer, getting an HR person, getting an IT person, then finding real estate you can lease and, and all of that before you can even um, get started on the process of making your widget. You've got to build this foundation. And that's the part I think a lot of big household brands, I think that's the part that they, they shy away from. And, and they don't have these people anymore. Yep. They just, they just don't have them anymore. And, you know, you know, the, 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 the folks that run uh, HR, you have to have somebody local, right? There's mm-hmm. always issues. The, 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 the folks that run IT, there's gotta be someone local. So uh, you could take a, a, a company like Apple and imagine that they've got a really amazing support infrastructure for all their retail stores, but those skills are very different than the person that is, is going to go manage facilities for a, a million square foot production site with conveyors and controls and access and badges and, and just kind of all of that stuff. I don't think they want to do that. Um, and it's not cost effective, right? So, uh, the whole value proposition of contract manufacturers is to is to get better asset utilization, better asset utilization of the building, the badge readers, the benches, the tools, the chairs. You get better utilization if we if we put multiple people in a co-pack facility, and uh, that's not lost on these folks. And um, the other thing is, we'll talk about how to do this, but it's the same way that they, they, they offshored in the, in the first place. And in the first place, you took the people that knew how to do this from those manufacturing facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, early in my career, you take those folks, they go to Asia. Mm-hmm. They live there for a few months as an expat or, or, or years. You, you take this, this, uh, this steward that, that used to run this operation and they teach the, the outsource provider or the low cost region, they teach them how to do the special sauce. And the, the, the benefit to the company is that you've, you've got this person or persons on the payroll for maybe a year, but you don't have all of those high cost uh, people that you used to have, but there is a, like a ramp up period. So, so people are going to ask like, how would you start reshoring? I would do it the exact same way. I would go to the, you know, the, the, the people that manage my line in, in Shenzhen right now. And I would, I would find a few of those kind of core engineering and operations people. And I would make them expats um, to, to help me stand up the facility here. You, you have to get this tribal knowledge. You, there's certain, there's certain things. If something, if a line's been running, you know, for, for three plus years, it's, it's polished, it's smooth. It's, it's working by now. Um, and so no matter what you do, if you stand it up somewhere else, uh, even if you moved a line from, from Tennessee to Kentucky, it's going to be bumpy, uh, because you have a bunch of new people. So I think that, that that's kind of the approach that you have to take is 
is you, you, you salt your workforce with some folks that have done this before. You kind of have that expense, but we have to rebuild. Like we have to rebuild this capability. Like, um, you know, here, here, here in town, like uh, there used to be a dozen tool and die shops. It was like two left. It's, it's just, you know, the, those, oh. those, those ancillary and kind of supporting systems um, are not plentiful. Uh, so you've got to, you, you got to, you got to get any head start you can. And for that reason, I think, you know, some contract manufacturers are going to get ahead of the curve. And I know some of the Asian CMs are already setting up us based operations to get ready for this. I mean, Foxconn has been notorious, not in the, not in the news sometimes for some of the greatest things, but they were the first one that were like, Hey, we're going to get ready for reshore. So they started standing up facilities in, in, in North America. Yep. They're ready. For it, right. Um, hopefully, hopefully that trend accelerates. Yeah. And I guess uh, the reason, go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, I think you bring up a really good point, Adam, and I'm not going to use his name to, to quote him. Cause I don't know if he wants me to use his name. Uh, but, uh, I work with, uh, I work with a gentleman, um, who is in the contract manufacturing space and he also deals with a bunch of other contract manufacturers and, and deals with kind of all the influx of the money into the various markets. And his thought on the topic is basically why would anyone go stand up their own manufacturing facility, right? So if let's say Vlad wants to go make makeup, right? Vlad wants to go make makeup. His choices are go find a contract manufacturer that will mix his mix and go package it into generally normal packages running down the same line using the same filler and machines that they already have or find $50 million, $75 million, and go build machines, go find a facility, go hire all of those humans. I think that as we talk more about reshoring, especially in the short term and probably into the medium term, we're going to find contract manufacturers, people that have already figured out how to put whatever, you, whatever you're making into the wrapper are going to kind of significantly and maybe exponentially increase in opportunities and then maybe down the road, medium to long-term, maybe at that point, there are some companies that find it important enough to go build their own facilities. But to Adam's point, so many people have lost the skills and knowledge to how do I go build this? How do I go create a facility, design a line, make something run, that there is that huge skills gap that we currently possess, um, at least in North America. That's true. It's absolutely true. Like, uh, I had joked with you guys before that our skill sets are becoming a little rare and, um, you know, people are, are paying a premium for this and it's going to get, it's going to kind of accelerate, um, as, as, you know, more and more of the workforce that remembers manufacturing retire. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things that, that have never moved, right? So cars are still made here. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you, if you count final assembly, which what it is, a car factory is doing that. If you've ever gone to a, automotive facility it's first of all it's amazing like those guys are the best in the business but let's be real right there's not raw steel coming in one side and a toyota coming out the other there's a ton of tier one and tier two vendors that are jit delivering pallets of pre-packaged goods yep you could argue that they're more assembled um, because the electronics might come from mexico or japan like they're if you think about making a car it's a lot like being a systems integrator right like we didn't invent the robot. We don't, we don't want to do that. We didn't invent the sensors we use to, to control our robots. 
um, but we're we're integrating them like like a Toyota, and and really the the role of the the integrators is to have killer apps or features that that are, you know make them stand out from others. Some of them it's going to be service or this niche uh, expertise, like the, the folks that do paint automation, like highly specialized, and um, you know the, they're basically building something as complicated as a as a Corolla. Uh, uh, kudos to them. So I think, you know, um, the, the other, whoa, I have a, I have a, a fan here. I think the other thing that's going to prevent folks from wanting to stand up these, these factories is, uh, you know, the skills challenging to find, but also like we have trained them on the whole notion of economies of scale and the outsource model. It's tough to untrain all of that at once. And that's, that's what you'd, you'd ultimately be asking. And I don't think tons of them are gonna have the appetite. Now, the folks that really, really, really own their product, maybe the folks that set up their own manufacturing hubs, their own internal in low cost countries, they're gonna have the appetite to do it because they didn't lose this knowledge. They still take that very seriously. And there's, some, there's either some intellectual property protection either in the product or the process that they don't want it out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, I, I think those folks will, will, will do stuff. The other, the other sector besides automotive that still make things here is white goods. And I think white goods are made in the U.S. because they're too expensive to ship from Asia. Like, it's, it's just like the shipping density is terrible. Um, I don't think that they can be as profitable as they'd like to be. So we still know how to do those things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know that we were ever... I don't think we were ever tremendous at, at, at consumer electronics. Like a, a ton of that came from Taiwan and then shifted to China. So. I, I really like oh, that last like comment, I guess, Adam. And I, I think like, again, like drawing from my, I would say like early career experience at uh, Procter and Gamble. And I guess like one of the reasons why I, I would see a, a problem with co-packers or co-manufacturers is that we worked with this uh, plastics moldings company to provide us some of the raw materials and if anything, like they ran extremely lean, right? So they didn't have enough mm -hmm. like personnel to run, I would say optimally at the time. Obviously this was almost uh, close to a decade ago now, but um, we had a lot of trouble making sure that they were able to provide us with enough materials that we needed to run lines in our facilities, right? And so there were even instances where I would go on site to their factories and make sure that they're running optimally and try and figure out you know their problems so that again they could supply us enough parts that's why again like maybe i've seen it from that side of, of things that's why i'm always a little bit questioning the model of why sh why shouldn't we uh, manufacture ourselves because i think there's maybe this like breaking point or like a balance between um obviously you would have to hire a lot more staff and manage a lot more but there's also in my mind a higher quality that comes in with having your own team and be able to manage that internally versus relying on someone external. And again, I wasn't involved in the politics and the discussions, but I could tell you from like an engineering standpoint, I also couldn't just walk in and do whatever I wanted, right? Like because it was parts produced for us, but it was still a co-manufacturer. So it, it, it there's difficult lines to cross when uh, when you work that way but that's just again like my experience maybe that's why i'm always uh questioning 
uh, how we reshore back uh, to the U.S. You bring up a good point, and I've seen both scenarios. I've seen the scenario that you describe, and I've seen something a little different. So um, for the scenario you described is, is because a, a sourcing, a commodity sourcing person decided, you know, I'm going to pay six cents for this, this plastic bottle or widget or, or whatever it's going to be. And they put it out for competitive bids and, you know, Adam, Adam Co. decides I'm going to bid on this and I've got to produce it at 4.3 cents to, to, to allow for some margin for myself. Mm -hmm. If I hire enough people to run this the way it should be run, probably going to lose money. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's the scenario they're in. And, and you take these gambles and contract manufacturers, they do this all the time. They take this gamble of like, I'm going to run this at break even. And, and the reason why you take a business at break even is now the next bottling line I put over here, um, all of my overhead is covered by this one. That's just break even. And so that's what they're all, that's the gamble they're always trying to make. And if they don't get that second customer in a, in a timely enough fashion, what they do is they start cutting the, the, the resources that are, that are allocated to that. And that's when the, when the customer ultimately starts to suffer. I think, you know, to, to do this well, you need equitable partnerships, right? Where there's a, a shared risk and reward model. Those always work the way you describe, like, you know, you can walk in open door, the, the suppliers are more responsive. Um, but, you know, we've been conditioned for years of, of moving to these low cost region where it really is down. This is my landed cost per unit. And, and the other thing like um, domestic companies are really programmed to, this is crazy to me. They hire a CM in a low cost region, but they also hire a third party sourcing organization that goes and monitors the quality. Mm -hmm. And so like you, you like, you didn't trust the CM's quality. Um, you couldn't pay them a little bit more. You had to hire this independent third party Maybe you should stand up your own facility. Um, you know, Nike, uh, massive, massive, massive operations. Like whatever you think you've ever seen that's big, uh, quadruple it. And so what they have is they have these regional folks peppered all through Asia. They're their own you know, Nike badge people. And they're going to these factories and they're checking the quality and they're living on the line when there's a problem and, and expediting things and, and, they're really, really close with those factories, right? Like the, the, it's, it's no Mr. Montoya. It's, oh, hey, Adam, hey, you, by the time we're done, you want to get a beer? Like, like they're very tight with these guys, um, but they have figured this out and they've always been, they've always been, and they've always had to build these supply chains. You think about like a lot of our companies started here and then we moved there and maybe we got it right, maybe we got it wrong, but you know, that was this scenario you described, but. Let me tell you the flip side of the contract manufacturing that, that does work pretty well. And that's that you're doing something that to you is hyper-specialized. Mm -hmm. Me as the CM, I'm doing it for you and four of your competitors. Mm -hmm. And some, some big value unlocks happen there. Um, the easiest thing to wrap your brain around is like you come to me and, and I'm making a cell phone for you and I'm making two other cell phones. I can put a wall between those lines. I can make sure that there's never any IP bleed over. That's very common in contract manufacturing. But now you get access to the unified shipping rates of all three of you. That, that's a very real value prop that comes out of the, the CM model um, where, you know, you, you take a Foxconn or a Flex or 
uh, any of those folks, they have these, these crazy shipping rates um, that, that, you know, it was really painful for me when I left the company, I had to go ship something at UPS store. Uh, I was, <laughs> between, you know, call it 10 bucks and now it's 40. Uh, I don't know what it was, it's, but it was substantially more. And I'm like, holy smokes, on a, on a much massive, much more massive scale, that's what's happening with all the products they're producing in their factories. So there's that, there's that shared HR resource, the shared IT guy uh, or gal, there's the, the shared controls engineers that support multiple lines. So there is some, some inherent economies of scale you get out of that. And, and it's their core business. Look, um, Apple's core business is, is you know, ubiquitous, beautiful, easy user experience, right? Apple's like, I don't know what they would describe themselves as, but I, I'm, I'm sure that they would love to be just basically an accessibility engine for, you know, the internet and unifying human networks, like something good and, and wholesome like that. They don't necessarily need to be in the hardware business or want to be in the hardware business because their software is so damn good now. And like, that's, that's kind of where they're at. Um, but one thing they certainly don't want to be in is the manufacturing business. So difficult to kind of get them into that. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I said, I see this kind of in many ways from multiple companies, again, on the like manufactured, like home goods, or I would say like um, food, whatever. You see a lot of that too, because I think at the end of the day, those companies are also mostly branding companies versus manufacturing facilities. Right. And I think that's what I've seen in many cases, they would rather be able to outsource somebody making that product than necessarily having all the skill sets that they produce. Because again, companies like P&G, Kraft Heinz, Post Holdings, like they're very good at branding their products and that's ultimately where the value is. But like I said, I I guess maybe it's my enthusiasm for manufacturing automation. I still remain positive in the sense that I, I think that they shouldn't lose that skill set entirely, right? Like I think it's going to be difficult when you spread yourself almost like too thin and all you do is assemble maybe the final piece or wherever the IP comes in or, yeah. you know, something that's proprietary to them. And that's the only component that you touch. And all of a sudden, if there is a problem in one of those suppliers, you run into a lot of issues. But I think like we can spend a lot of uh, time, you know, like discussing this back and forth. I, I think there's no maybe like clear answer, right? It's, it's probably like a great area depending on where you stand. Uh, but I do want to dive into Bright Machines a little bit. I know that we have to thank them, but maybe after we thank them. Yeah, Vl Vlad's going to play a noise that we can't hear at him, and then I'm going to thank Bright Machines, and then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about them and the skill sets that we're missing and how to, uh, how to get there. You, there go, you go, Vlad. Man. Perfect. So we want to thank Bright Machines for sponsoring the reshoring theme. At Bright Machines, we believe there's a smarter way to build things. That's why we're working with manufacturers around the world to rethink manufacturers, manufacturing operations for whatever comes next. We enable manufacturers to reshore more quickly, to future-proof their factories, to keep up with fluctuating demand, and to save money. With a full-stack solution for assembly and inspection that marries deep industry and technology expertise with hardware and software in new ways, for a more intelligent approach that's more flexible and more scalable for the next normal and beyond. And then Bright Machines has a couple of items on reshoring that we talked about last week. So they've got a 
a reshoring guide for 2020 and top five answers for reshoring. I'm going to go ahead and drop those links in the chat. Those links will also be in the show notes. If you guys are listening on podcast form Uh, Vlad, why don't you go ask Adam a little bit about bright machines? And then I would like to make sure that we dig into the skills gap that we currently have and potentially how we can solve that. Well, I'd like to learn, I guess, Adam, a little bit more about the solutions specifically from Bright Machines and maybe what uh, you and your team are working on as well. Sure. Um, The solution is a modular platform for automation. And we use the term full stack. And and really what we're saying is that from software to hardware, it works together much the same way, you know, a really slick smartphone is going to work. And we use the analogy all the time, like, you know, the, the best embodiment of the Android experience is the Nexus phone, right? They had to go build this because they watched everybody else building machines for a long time that didn't really, didn't really get it perfect. And they finally got it perfect on one that they did themselves. Um, we sell uh, robotic appliances that we believe are the perfect hardware to complement our software. But we are a, a software first um, organization and we, we believe that the key to not just reshoring, but just efficient manufacturing in general starts with um, software defining the process. Now, it's opposite of what we do today. Today, we kind of take the product, we figure out how it's going to go together, and we might reverse engineer, forward engineer, might have a CAD file, we may not. And, and then we build these bespoke systems around that process. And that works really, really well, and it's hyper-efficient. If you told me I need to make, uh, you know, 10 million... Uh, of this product that's never going to change, custom automation might be the way to go. But mm-hmm. you told me I'm going to make a million a year and every other year it's going to change a little bit. There's going to be a different form factor or more sensors or more stuff, i.e. phones. Um, there's a tremendous value prop in our approach in that we're going to go from CAD, uh, tear it down and move into really discrete manufacturing steps with these robotic appliances and their, their, their modules. So if you said I'm going for 1 million to 1.2 million, cool. Split the line up right here, drop two more modules in, here's your additional capacity. Um, and then, you know, I have this problem. Every nine months we start, you know, working on the next generation model, but I can't take this line down to, to start doing my NPI. This is a very real problem for electronics manufacturing. Well, we can do your NPI digitally. Right? So you're, you're taking this and we're, we're putting it through our software platform and we're figuring out the actual robotic steps, the robotic process, what sensors are needed. We're doing all that um, in the cloud in a CAD model. What's um, an NPI? Sorry to interrupt. New product introduction. Okay. So the, the joke is, is like uh, you get one week off after shipping the latest phone and then you start working on next year's. And, and so... Part of that problem is that you have to retool the whole line. Um, in our world, you're doing this digitally. So it gives manufacturers a giant, giant head start and a competitive advantage in terms of like debugging the process, going faster and preparing for the next um, widget faster. Uh, that's, that's kind of our, our big piece. And so we have this the software that, that it's kind of like a factory OS. And if you have really modern MES systems and really good analytics, great, we'll talk to that, we'll, we'll make them smarter um, because we're gonna give you real parametric and performance data of what your line is doing in a way you've never probably had access to it. Most people, they get an end of day report that says I made this many widgets and this many of them were good. 
we're, we're going to tell you that at this discrete process step, the pressure is drifting. We're going to tell you like, hey, this thing's probably going to need repair at some point. Um, we're going we're gonna to tell you what the OEE impact's going to be to making this process change. And so that's where we're fundamentally different. We start with software. We don't write the software uh, after the hardware is bolted to the floor. Uh, we start with a software first approach. And so, so you provide, I guess, like that solution. But if I understand correctly, you also build the manufacturing cells that execute and assemble the, the components? Yes. We have a, a catalog of, of what we call BRCs or bright robotic cells. And they're, they're, they're automation appliances. So there's a, there's a, a, a six axis or a scare or a gantry. And so when you bring me your product, we're, we're modeling it in the system and I'm dragging and dropping which one of these building blocks I want to do this function. Maybe I don't need all the degrees of freedom. So I'm gonna drop a gantry here. Maybe I need to settle really, really fast. Um, so I'm gonna use a scare and I'm, I'm gonna uh, you know, move the fixture very, very close. So I'll pick the right building block for the task at hand. Um, and that includes dispensing, fasteners, pressing. Um, so we have these, these building blocks and the experience for you is not unlike um, installing a printer at home. Like when you install a new printer, uh, you, you might plug it into your computer, maybe it's wireless. You, you just load the driver in and all of the functionality works. Nobody's writing software and, and code, but Today, if you're buying robotic systems, that's what you have to do. You have to write the truck. So our whole bundle, when we say, here's a building block, you, you load the driver over the web. Um, and it, it now tells you how to, how to manipulate this Fanuc robot. You want to jog it, you use the HMI. You want to, you want to, you know, actuate a gripper, you use the HMI. It's all, it's like, it's like the Linksys experience when you, when you install a new router in your home. Um, you don't know how to go manage the command line and set up routing and, and, and all of those scripts that are happening behind it. You're just using the GUI. That's the experience we're giving you. But these aren't cobots. These are industrial grade production ready systems that, you know, have, have sensors, um, have really, really high MTBF and kind of have the, the stuff that you need for an industrial application. Um, so that kind of articulate what we do. Yeah, it makes sense. And I can, I can only imagine like the complexity, right? Because there's also machine vision probably that comes in to probably inspect the parts, understand like what's going on, because it's not always just sensors that can measure, let's say, as you said, like the pressure or maybe the deviation that happens between parts, but also cameras that try and inspect the modules and then relay that information that you need to. Again, there's a lot of data probably that comes in through, um, through these modules. There's inspection, which is a, was a, a you know, we, we have our, our business is broken up into these kind of three pillars, but inspection is one of our cores. And so uh, looking at what we did is, is a really big function of our day-to-day -day life. So I put it together. I, I have uh, inserted this module into this crevice and I put three screws in. Now take a picture and did it look right? Yes, that is uh, a core piece. What we're doing that's a little bit unique to others is, is you know, Inspection is, is to us viewed as a bit as table stakes. What we're trying to get to is predictive. Um, and it's not ready for prime time yet, but we're going to get there. It is, it is our mission. Really where we're going to take the OS is to look at this, this, this board now and say, I see these three holes. Are those, do you want to put a fastener in those? Click here and then push that program to the robot. That's the ultimate where, where our OS is going.
Um, hey, that looks like uh, an edge connector. Would you like to apply force? Yes. Now imagine if you could just, that's as simple as it was um, to, to program a complicated robot. Um, it's, bad, it's bad for controls engineers, but like it's really great for manufacturers that are quite frankly, they, they can't find controls engineers today anyway. So um, that's, that's what we're doing. And we're taking it away from you know, dedicated, highly specialized skills and we're moving deployment of industrial robots down to the technician, right? So the technician can go into this HMI and say, I wanna do this really complicated function or I wanna trigger these IOs and they just drop into a menu and they'll grab the object for uh, you know, a, a linear press and say, I wanna apply this much pressure for this much time and I want a, 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 a force feedback loop. You, you can just drag these objects over and create it in the same way that you would, you know, design a flow chart. Um, it's, it's, it's very like, you're like, well, when you look at the old way we do things versus kind of our approach, it's a little bit fresher. But in the end, it's, it's to, you know, help bridge that gap. We're going to talk about skills. Um, we're democratizing industrial robots. Like that's, that's the goal. I'm very curious about those challenges. Again, I can only like imagine what goes into, I would say like obstructing the current difficulty in programming robotics. Mm -hmm. And I would almost say somewhat ancient methodologies and how those languages are structured. So I'm happy that, you know, it's going to become easier because again, like I know that there's a high premium on those skill sets and it's very difficult to learn for many reasons. And so if we can make it easier and more accessible, I think that's going to be a, a great win. Dave, what are, what are your thoughts on this? I think absolutely. I love everything Adam is saying. Um, I would love to at some point be able to, to go out and, and kind of see this in action and see as, as you know, normal people are, are building factories because Adam's vision, I mean, if we can get there, the industry will be better as a whole. And if it's Bright who is helping to lead the way into democratizing programming and all of that, I think we will we will all be better for it if we can just start shipping better data analytics, MES, other solutions that like show you useful data as opposed to just a, a sea of numbers that don't that, that then take a you know, experienced controls person or an experienced automations person to, to then drill down into it. I think even that in and of itself is valuable. So I'd love to, to find a way to go out and see it in person um, in, in the near future or at some point, because it's a very exciting, it is, it is very exciting what you guys are doing, um, Adam. Um, and then with that, I want to make sure that we, we talk upon kind of like the skills, right? So it seems like what you guys are doing at Bright will help alleviate the skills gap. But as we've, we've talked about for a good portion of the last hour, there are simply not enough people who understand controls or who understand manufacturing to go out and build 10,000 new facilities if we decide to go build new facilities tomorrow. Uh, what is your take on that? And where do you think that we as a industry, we as a, a world have to go in order to help reinvigorate some interest in manufacturing? I think it has to start with some policy. 
right? I think governments need to take some accountability for this, this, you know, COVID was like a real eye opener. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember the mask shortage? Like, yeah. That, do, you know what a, do you know what a mask making machine costs? No. $12,000. Wow. You can buy them on Alibaba. It's $12,000. And, and we couldn't do it, right? We couldn't figure it out. We couldn't like solve the problem. And I think that was like the most in your face example of why you, you, something has to be done at a policy level. Like we could not give her, there was, I remember uh, I worked on a project with a, with a hospital to create this UV sanitizer so they could reuse masks. I did, that was my contribution. And so I pointed out to somebody from the government, I was like, you know, you can buy these on Alibaba. And, and they said, well, we couldn't get them in anyway. There's tariffs. It's complicated. And I was like, you know what you can do then? Pay them $1,000 for the, for the solid model. Just give mm-hmm. me the design and, and we can use a very low cost fabricator over here. I can get you a robot. And so like, that was like the greatest in your face example. Like we've got to figure out the things that are mission critical and be able to produce them anywhere. And then there's other things that like are just good for the environment. Maybe make local for local. And local for local does a couple of things. One, it allows you to hyper tune for your, for your, you know, your local customer. Um, it completely uh, negates the crazy amount of inventory that's stuck on, on the supply chain. Right now it's two months, right? You got a month on the water from China and then you got a month stuck in port waiting for some inspector. Yep. It, like local for local gets that down to like a week's worth of inventory. So asset velocity goes up, profit goes up. Um, it actually probably, once the flywheel is spinning, it's probably cheaper. And so we have to do that. But when you say, how do I address the skills gap? I look at it from two ways. One, we have to upscale our workforce. And today, the way that it works is if an operator is using a complicated machine, they might use pedals or they might put their fingers in little sensors to index it, but they don't actually have the ability to edit what the machine does. What if they see a bunch of parts that are coming in that are a little bit non-conforming? Well, they have to call the support engineer. The support engineer comes out and validates what they saw. And then that support engineer calls the local SI they schedule a tech to come out and modify a recipe. They, they recompile this, push it to the PLC, stand there and make sure that it works for a little while, sign off and then leave. And like this whole thing, um, this still has an operator there standing there watching this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Our belief is why doesn't the operator just go over and plug in this offset? It triggers an alert for a local engineer to validate this change. They can do this from their phone. Boom, no stop. So we're going to upskill, you know, kind of the capability of the operator to begin. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what does it do for, for the controls engineers, right? So um, don't, be, don't be super nervous. We're not going to make you obsolete, but your capability will, will be four to five X, right? The idea is not to eliminate the controls engineer. Like you can still go in behind the, the GUI and actually go in and, and, and tweak the, 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 the text if you'd like. But we're going to give you the ability for the really simple things to four extra productivity. Um, and especially the things that you're like, oh, I don't want to go on site to go deal with this. It's so trivial. You're going to be able to go in straight through a web browser, hit the back end and, and make this change. And then look at a camera inside and say, yep, that's what I was looking for. Go. And it's done. And so 
upskilling the operator to get them to more of that technician skill, which is where we need them to be anyway. Um, and it's a job that they, they are going to like more and they're going to you know, respect more and they'll be more versatile. And then taking our, our automation resources and for forexing their productivity. Um, if you used to deploy 50 robots uh, a, a year in your small SI shop with the same resources, we're going to get you to 200. It's kind of the goal. My question would be, you know, the maybe on the education side, how do you compete with the traditional, I would say, like software companies uh, when you're, let's say, a, a controls engineer, a software engineer, hardware, whatever, uh, that are offering now, again, because of the pandemic, I would say much better advantages in many aspects to go work for them versus going to a traditional manufacturer. Like, how do we entice... I would say the youth to see manufacturing as a field that is that is offering a good career opportunity. You know, I, I think the, there's a BLS website, the, the, the Bureau of Land and Statistics, I, I believe is what it stands for, but it actually rates all of the you know career opportunities in the United States and it shows the growth. <clears throat> this data is um, you know, anywhere from two to five years behind at any given time. But I, I looked at her, I have, I have a daughter who's a, who's a recent graduate mechanical engineer. And early on, I asked her the question very directly. I was like, how did I convince you to do this? And she said, you told me that manufacturing was, was you know, secretly, you know, running the universe and it was cool and it was sexier than people thought, even though it's, a, so I, I, I tricked her is what I said, uh, is, was what happened. But um, the growth, Right now shows like industrial engineers at, at like 14% or something like, I think it's very low. I think it's very behind. And at the same time, it shows software engineers at 22%. I think that's, that's really getting stale um, because as software languages have evolved and there's like all these tools on the cloud, like I don't think we need as many programmers as we, as we, we, we might have, like where the university system always takes a little while to catch up with supply and demand. So I think it'll right size itself, and I think you'll see it in salaries. And I think that the the, the salaries are going to become a key driver. If we go through this manufacturing renaissance, which we're starting to see, I think those those skills become more in demand, and they inherently start to to, to fall subject to the to the rules of supply and demand. I think these, these these new graduates will get paid more. The other thing you have to do is, is philosophically, we have to make manufacturing cool again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to make some pride, and you know. Ford sold a lot of, Henry Ford sold a lot of cars to his employees, right? He was like, that was the whole concept. I'm going to build you up so you can actually afford to buy this thing that's way better than a horse and carriage. And, and you know, you become the backbone of, 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 you know, society and infrastructure. The reality of things is service jobs and, you know, retail and commerce jobs, for every dollar of that, there's about 50 cents created in the orbit, right? Supporting those functions, supporting those people. So that's, that's like, you get this halo effect. Manufacturing, every dollar is about a dollar fifty in, in the halo, right? So mm-hmm. it's from a, from a, a governmental and, and, you know, national pride thing, it's, it's huge, right? So when, when Ford's coming to your town, it's not the Ford plant that that is, is really driving all that economic engine. It's all the tier one suppliers that are now going to be on the perimeter. It's all the tier two 
folks that, that are now going to be competing for jobs. So it, it, it rises with all the ships. But um, we have to work with universities. We have to work with um, you know, trade schools. We have to work with all of these, these types of resources to build, uh, to build some coolness back into manufacturing. And I think the best way you can do it is products that are like just super, super romanticized made in the USA. Like that should be really proud, right? Like when you get, um, you know, any version of a product that's been made local for local, um, mm-hmm. it should have like the local flag on, right? It should be a specialty product and it should be like, uh, you know, product red. Product red costs the same price as a regular iPhone, but, uh, but you know, you know that some portion of it goes to this. Like we should be doing the same thing with domestically manufactured goods and the people that make those things should take great pride in. And also, um, dirty secret, but the sneaker heads know this. The sneaker heads know the footwear factories that make the best shoes. I'm not going to get into this uh, because I do too, but the <laughs> sneaker heads know. Now imagine a world where, you know, you'd look at a factory code on, on, on a TV and be like, yeah, that, that's made in Alabama. Like got some pride here that's supported by the university. Like, I think that's the kind of programs we have to, 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 to do and we just have to make it cool. And we have to get some brand ambassadors that are cool uh, and, and make it sound pretty fun. Uh, are there such initiatives? Be- Sorry to interrupt that. I'm like, I guess like it, it's almost like an obvious like question, but so I really like the fact that you mentioned red because I think that's a very, I guess like interesting like branding opportunity that gives back. But is there anything like that for manufacturing that you know of? No, and and you know, if you guys have inroads to any politicians, you guys have already earmarked the money for this stuff. It's out there. Like it's there. I don't know where it goes to, I don't know how it gets spent, but there is money set aside for this domestic manufacturing and everybody's buying for it. It would be awesome if we actually facilitated some programs that got this out there, that raised awareness. Like, you know, think about these the ads that have, have compelled kids to stop smoking for years. Like that's, that's, that's governmental funding. That's policy change. And, and like, you probably need to do the same thing to, to bring manufacturing back. I would throw in, I guess like my idea would be like factory tours. Cause I, I think like you really don't get the picture that uh, it, again, you know, when I was just starting in manufacturing and I would tell my friends like what I was doing, it's very difficult to paint a picture. Obviously, you know, there's some trade secrets involved and there's some, proprietary machinery maybe that they can't show but ultimately when you see it in person i think it's almost like a wow like this is a really cool place to be there's a lot of again like interesting projects that are being run there's a lot of again there's initiatives there's a lot of funds i would say to do different like r&d projects and so it it's a very interesting i think like dynamic that people are just not in exposed to enough right because again there's a lot of closed doors so to speak from the the end users and they just quite frankly don't show off their i would say like engineering or even technical prowess so to speak you know when you're doing like uh, the, the later stages of, of of engineering degree like you have to do these like uh big big group projects or something like that we, we can move that back right you can have the kids doing this in, in middle and elementary school and in fact 
we gave a <clears throat> we gave a lean manufacturing class to a bunch of eighth graders last year. It was like part of a community mm-hmm. outreach. And so I set up, uh, I sent all these kids a box of Legos and we set up a lean manufacturing line with the stopwatch and, and did a, the mini Kaizen and it kind of showed that, and they were like, whoa, I was like asking for feedback. Some of the feedback was like, this is crazy. I don't know why we did this. But some of them were like, manufacturing is way more interesting and more technical than I thought. Like, I think there's a misperception that, you know, manufacturing is, is, is you know, you know, some, some dingy factory worker hitting at something with a hammer. It's not at all what it is. And, oh. and unfortunately, the only places where they have really big industrialized zones are kind of in Asia now. And so we, we, we need to make that cool. Um, and not associated with some of the negative stuff that's been there. Hey, automotive, automotive is the backbone of, of the world. Like, like any politician knows you win the UAW, you're going to win. Like there's, there's, a, there's an outsized influence. Now, what if we built another uh, demographic of the domestic manufacturing union or something like that? Right. So like, how do we, how do we organize uh, around this and, and catalyze? I think that's what you need to get politicians attention is a, a large pool of people that think the same, but we can we can unlock some of these these things for young people and get them interested. They don't even know it's a thing, and nope. quite frankly, right now it's not a thing. So shame on us. We got to do better. I I think that these are all amazing points. I I don't think I think this is the first time we've ever had two guests in a row who gave some really good advice uh, to politicians. So last week we had Harry on and uh, Harry also, well, Harry's going to go testify in front of Congress at some point. So I think he's a couple of levels above, uh, above us at this point, Adam, but I think that that is some very good advice. Um, Let me go ahead and and ask you some wrap up questions with the promise that we will have to get you back on at some point in the future uh, to continue these conversations and maybe see how, uh, some of these ideas have been enacted. Um, but as we go to wrap up, so the, the question that I like to ask everyone is, what do you think the future is going to look like? It might be the future of reshoring. It might be the future of finding and bringing in more talent and exciting kind of the, the, the nation, the uh, exciting the, the regions. Uh, what, what do you think the future is going to look like? I think we're going to make some, some policy shifts in terms of both trade balance. I think we're going to rebalance some of the trade elements the same way we do commodities and like, you know, farming. We're going to, we're going to look at that at manufacturing. And um, I think green initiatives are going to play into this. Like you're going to start to have, you know, these green credits are going to start to be a bigger factor. Like, man, you ship a lot of stuff from China. You're going to pay more. And so I, I think the government will step in um, over, over, you know, the next five to 10 years. And then, you know, just like, the, the surprise, you know, energy grids are suffering because there's too many EVs now in certain states. Like, like I think we'll have some of these similar growing pains. We'll say, all right, we're going we're gonna to encourage uh, this rush. It'll be like, you know, the gold rush. We'll encourage this and we'll break some systems. Then we'll realize that we're not pumping out enough MEs or IEs or, or, or EEs or whatever. We'll figure this out pretty quick. And then we'll have the trade school imbalance. Like, so, it, it kind of becomes a series of painful events, but I think in 10 years we've transformed the landscape and we really are thinking hyper-localized, right? So, uh, you know, people in Asia have uh, different size footwear than, than people in North America and, and in Europe, it's also a different size. And that's why they have different sizing systems. But uh, when it, everything is made local for local, you get this opportunity to exploit um, those regional differences in a way that 
the brands, they have never worked on this problem before. They're going to figure out that they can charge $10 more for this phone with an American flag on it. Absolutely. No, I, I love that. Um, and then the next question is, what sort of career advice would you offer? I mean, so you, your daughter that just graduated college, you suggested that she go into manufacturing, uh, which we all thank you for. What would you suggest to someone maybe early or middle in their career? Maybe they're looking at getting into manufacturing or, or leaving. What would your suggestion be to them? I, you know, when you, when you get new engineers, one of the things that manufacturers are doing now, which I don't love, is they're throwing them immediately into operations. Mm -hmm. So now I'm coming out of this academic world and I've, I've been here and I'm studying hard and you're going to throw me at operations and I'm working alongside somebody who, who maybe doesn't have that formal education and don't have, you know, some of this life experience. And you're making me do this thing that I was never prepared for. Mm -hmm. I think it runs people off. Like people start as an engineer at, a very, very large, prominent domestic automotive in which they throw them into ops for a year. And, and maybe they've learned something along the way that, that um, you know, says that that works for them. I'm not so sure. Uh, I think you have to make it something where there's multiple predefined paths mm -hmm. that play to, to what you are passionate about. Maybe there are people that, that really want to go do controls. There are people that really want to go do process. There are people that love metallurgy. Um, and so we need to give them a track and there needs to be, um, you know, kind of the, the, the thought leader. Maybe it's like a fellow, like that's, this person is hyper, hyper. So they're like, like Harry's like hyper smart. Uh, mm -hmm. and then there's, there's somebody that wants to be more operations focused, give them these, these paths and make them accessible. Um, I don't think it's organized right now. No, the software organization, uh, uh, the software industry is very organized like this. It's stratified right now. And like, you kind of know, oh, I'm going to go into UX or I'm going to go into backend or I'm going to go into front end. Mm -hmm. Like we don't do this um, with manufacturing today. And that's a big miss. Um, we don't allow tailored career paths. We just said, oh, it's just basic manufacturing. And the only thing you can do is move up in the operational chain, which means mm -hmm. I've got to go to Asia. I've got to have more people under me. I, I'm not creating... Uh, experiences, if I just really want to be smart and solve difficult problems, I don't find that trajectory. And if I do, it pays way less than going and just being a basic software person. Like we have done this foundationally to ourselves in, in some ways. No, I, I think that those, that those are some exceptionally good points. Uh, thank you for that, Adam. Um, now, I, I, I joked with you that I like to call this the not sponsored audible uh, section in which I ask you for some book recommendations and Vlad goes and uh, downloads them on his phone. And, and you forewarned us that you're going to come with potentially a couple of strange uh, book recommendations. So what, what do you have for us? So one very topical that, that, that I had dusted off was this, you know, made in U.S. Uh, there's, there's a book. It's, it's actually on this very subject topic. I hadn't read it for a little while and some of, it, some of it's dated, um, but, but the, the concepts are still very valid and like thinking of things in terms of um, just this is wrong, right? I had forgotten yeah. that there are no, there are no, I don't know if you guys have noticed this during the pandemic, I went to a restaurant and they didn't give me uh, silverware. And I was like, what's up with that? And, and they said that there was a, a shortage of, of knives and forks. And I was like, no, this can't be. And I started Googling and I was going to find this. And I found out, sure enough, there are no domestically made uh, forks anymore. Huh. This is unacceptable. 
Like, talk about a solution. I, I guess it was takeout. It was you use so your I'm own fork at home. I'm in a restaurant using a plastic fork because that, which is terrible for the environment, there's, there's a plentiful. And I'm like, you know, there's still, there, those are equally made in China. How can we get those when we can't get those? So it was just strange to me. Um, that's a good one to go dust off and, and kind of revisit. And then I did mention to you guys that I'm a huge Tim Ferriss fan, uh, four hour work week. And if you read this, and you're like, well, this doesn't apply to me at all, then you, you, you need to reread it because you didn't get it. But you can hyper-optimize uh, and, and be more efficient. And I'm always looking for edges that I'm inherently trying to get an edge to spend my time better. No, that, th those are both great recommendations. I appreciate that, Adam. And then lastly, uh, you know, who, who should reach out to you? Who do you want to connect with? Who are you looking for help? Who are you looking to help? Do you need help from other people? I'm looking for, you know, people that have manufacturing challenges relative to like, you know, making things here. Maybe they can't figure it out. Maybe they don't know the first step, right? We love those customers. We love those, those kind of companies. And it could be a networking thing. I could just point you in the right direction or I can say, you know, there's like a bunch of stuff we can't work on right now. We're backed up, right? So if you bring me some super crazy, if you bring me tennis shoes, we can't work on it. Um, but if you, if you said, hey, you know, I have this, you know, this electronics application, um, but we just don't know where to make the, the first step. And, and hey, the, the hyper-local thing really resonated with us because we'd like to have a different keyboard in this region or something like that. Mm -hmm. These folks should reach out, find us on, you know, brightmachines.com, look for me on LinkedIn. Um, happy to talk, happy, you know, even if it's just conversing uh, or pointing them to, to somebody in the Rolodex, but um, we're looking for these customers that uh, are taking it seriously. And, and they need to mechanize, uh, either they've got a worker shortage problem or, or they have just a strong, strong desire to, to, to bolster their you know, capability. We love these projects. No, I, I think that's perfect. I, um, I, I'm very excited. Hopefully you get some positive conversations and, and hopefully we can potentially come along the way and help document what you do. Because uh, I think that that would, I think that would be very interesting. I think it would be good for everyone. Uh, within the industry. But no, Adam, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I did promise you we'd be about a 60 minute show and here we are almost 90 minutes in. Uh, so, so thank you, Adam. Thank you for the, the great conversation and everyone who has, uh, who has been with us. Um, big thank you to Bright Machines uh, for sponsoring this theme, all the work you're doing in reshoring and, and allowing Adam or connecting us with Adam so he can come on and share some of his amazing stories. I hear that there is talk of an Adam show, um, but Adam doesn't quite have enough time for an Adam show. Um, as of yet, but wow. uh, it'll be a snooze fest. No, oh no, 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 no. I guarantee you, there's going to be at least three people. Vlad, myself, and Paul will be in on the Adam show. Every Adam show there there is. Um, but but we we look forward to uh, to hearing when when that's going to come out. Uh, if you guys have listened along on the podcast form, uh, please feel free to drop us a like, rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Audible. Please like the Manufacturing Hub Network page on LinkedIn um, and other places. Uh, drop us a drop us the follow or drop Vlad a follow on Solus PLC. We'll go take credit for hitting 31,000 uh, subscribers in a couple of weeks. And if you guys want to stay up to date with everything, you can visit us on manufacturinghub.live. You can even drop your email in there and get a notification about an hour before we go live every week. But until next week, thank you all. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.